thank you so much, Hassan, for, for joining me today. I'm really, really excited to talk about, you know, your journey and the mission of, of Kalev and, and sort of what, what the vision is, because it's a really important one. And it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, coming from a place that a lot of people don't really sort of know of and, and sort of conflict areas around the world. How can we solve this, you know, in, in a different way? And I think business has a power to do so. And, and I see what you're doing is, is pretty amazing, my man. So like, I guess, walk us through, through your journey before, you know, starting the company and then we'll get into to the mission and vision of brand. Perfect. I mean, first of all, Grant, I've been a fan of the newsletter. I've been reading your emails. I've been I've been a fan of the podcast. So I, I, there's a couple of episodes that I can like I can recite off the off the top of my head. So thank you for building a platform and giving us a voice, all the change makers for good. So I want to thank you. I want to start with a thank you. Uh, and then I appreciate your work and efforts. Uh, thank you so much for the kind words as well. Um, my background has nothing to do with olive oil, which will <laughs> surprise most most people. Before finding Colev, I, I I was based in London, UK. I started my career from private equity, then moved on to venture capital and strategy. When I when I start these conversations, I I usually go, "Hello, my name is Hassan. I'm a startup addict with a with a uh, with a focus on social impact." Th- at that point. I think three. This is three to four years ago. I I I felt something was missing from my life. So uh, and I began to re- reevaluate. And I just started travel. I left London. I started traveling around Mediterranean, other places. Olives and agriculture, natural attract. Uh, they attracted me in a way that I wanted to learn more about olive oil. I wanted to learn more about olive farming. I learned a whole bunch about uh, regenerative agriculture and permaculture and sustainable farming. The, all the things that comes with it. True. That period through traveling, I became an olive oil sommelier. This was not in the plan. Mm. I, I went to Tuscan, Italy. Uh, I became a sommelier. I tasted all the olives that I can get my hands on. I, I traveled around uh, Mediterranean, Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, what have you. And I realized what the Cypriot olive, like what Cypriot olive is different than anybody else. Uh, it was mm. so unique. Uh, Cyprus is a small island, uh, as we'll get into it. But a lot of this uh, being born in the diaspora. My parents are Cypriots, but I was born in Istanbul, Turkey in, in diaspora. And there's, there's a big community of Cypriot diaspora. What everybody in the diaspora does, they smuggle olive oil. They hmm. get fresh fresh olive oil from Cyprus in like Coca-Cola bottles, whiskey bottles, what have you. They they put on in their luggage. It was, for me, it was the same. So living hmm. in London, like entertaining friends and family, everybody was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is just, okay, like you have to give us a bottle um, and this and that before my travel. So I think was always in the back of my mind like okay like i we got, i got good olive oil like right. let's, let's put that aside <laughs> and then that became i want to go from this technology startup strategy guy to like i want to do something in food i want to do something in olive oil Let, like let's try let's just start and that journey got me back to my roots uh where i consider my home uh which is cyprus uh living in all different places around the world like the startups i work with are like over a dozen and they're from all over the place like in you us, uh, London, Asia. So for me, as a, as for someone from the diaspora, as, as someone from a, a parents like a, a son of a migrant, it was necessary. It was priority to change the world for the better. Um, I understood. The, I, I understood that I understood the world in a different way. That the connections that I have with people, with humanity, and with places, as I call home, is different than anybody else. Mm-hmm. My parents were displaced. Uh, my mom was displaced when she was sixteen. I started learning about those stories like eight. And I had Greek Cypriot friends. I'm a, I'm a Turkish Cypriot myself. I had Greek Cypriot friends that had similar.
other uh, stories in, in 70s. My, my family had them in 60s um, and then on. So this idea of I want to change the world, I want to start an olive oil business. Let me start from the place that will make more sense to me, which is Cyprus. I think this is the, this is the, the sort of personal story of how Colive came about from this transition from London and, and, and living in a finance world and a tech world to, to getting to food and in, uh, in a social enterprise. You know, when you talk, I had those conversations with your mom, because I guess, was it always in the back of your head, you knew sort of the history of the island and, and maybe her history? Or when you were starting, you know, thinking about doing the olive oil company, did you go back to, to your family and talk to them a little bit more to understand a little bit more about the history of the conflict there? Or did you kind of already know, you know, throughout your life about about what was going on on the island. You have to be like growing up Cypriot, growing in diaspora, growing an immigrant, you have a political knowledge of the island, like mm-hmm. unmatched to anything else. So we, like like me and my brother, like everybody in diaspora, I, I assume, like grow, grows up into that because you realize as an immigrant, like, okay, this is not part of my identity or I come from a different place. So you start to learn about that place or your parents instill those like sort of values and, okay, this is what happened and that's why we're here. And and uh, I mean, my parents, like they, they put those values and, and ideas in the and the history from from long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of different than that. So when I speak to, about Cyrus, let's put a, for all the listeners, I think they'll, the Cyrus is not going to make any sense to most of your listeners, I believe, and which was which was for us the same when we were studying. Cyprus is a small Mediterranean island in close Israel, Turkey, Greece. Uh, if you can imagine that, it's the middle of the Mediterranean. It's the perfect climate for, it's a very sunshiny place. It's the perfect climate for olives. This island was always a multicultural island uh, from the beginning of time. Um, it was ruled under different empires. In modern times, it was a British colony. So Britain used this, uh, used the island to control trade routes from India and also the oil in Middle East. They still own uh, about 4% of the island. But Britain employed something called the divide and rule policy. Uh, towards the end of their rule, uh, the rule starts from 1800s uh, up to 1960. In this divide and rule policy, they started categorizing people. So Cypriots became uh, much like Americans or much like anybody else. They became Muslim, Greek, Turkish, Christian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, through this categorization, they played to the differences. So they played to the differences of mainly two communities which are Muslim Turkish Cypriots and Christian Greek Cypriots. Uh, these were friends, family, neighbors uh, for centuries, uh, more than centuries, uh, for millennia. But towards their coll- I mean, rules collapse, uh, they played to this, uh, they heightened the, the differences in identity uh, through that sort of violence and, and tension. The identities of, of Cypriots become very heightened as well. They start wearing different, they start um, talking different, um, and they start having different ideas as a result of that. What, which was Greek Cypriots wanted to unite the island with Greece. Uh, this was a mm. this was a movement after Second World War, and Turkish Cypriots didn't want that, so they wanted to align with Turkey uh, as what they saw as a, as their motherland, and Greek Cypriots saw Greece as their motherland, and Britain played into that. Um, when 1960 the Republic was founded, I'm not going to go into detail. The motherlands decided what it will look like: uh, the Britain, Greece, and Turkey, and the Cypriots didn't have any say in, in that. So there's mm. the tensions tensions grew. Sixties uh, was a lot of intercommunal fighting, it led to a civil war. Uh, 74, which most people know, the, the island's idea now or what they know about Cyprus is 
probably 74, which is there was a coup d'etat uh, backed by Greece that ousted the government and wanted to unite the island with Greece. Five days later, uh, Turkey intervened and then continued on to invade 30% of the island. So right now we have an island that is not bordered up. There's no peace agreement. The conflict is still ensuing in, in paper. There's a ceasefire, of course. Uh, from a non-violent place, the island is now divided into four. The place I'm, I'm speaking to right now, which is the the green line is called the green line. It's a ceasefire line, uh, 112 mile long, couple of kilometers, like a couple of miles and wide. It, it is governed, it is run by United Nations peacekeeping force that separates uh, Turkey's Cypriot majority to the north and Greek Cypriot majority to the south. And aptly named the, the, the south side of the uh, of the island is known as the Republic of Cyprus still. And the northern part of uh, the island is is uh, object usually books because it's not recognized by anybody else other than Turkey. So there's no international recognized government there. Um, and there are British bases still on the island. Uh, they kept the, the bases that forms about 4% of the, of the land mass of the island. So this is the this is the conflict. Like since then, since 74, there were no communication between the, hmm. the communities. Uh, it, wow. was, it was closed up. Uh, so you couldn't, like for my mom, which was from Paphos, and for um, Alex, uh, a partner that we started with, uh, the company, they didn't have access to their old homes. They didn't have access to their neighbors and friends and family till 2004. 2004 became, the island became a European part of European Union. Ceasefire land was opened up so we could travel and we could build a company um, after that hmm. because there's a, there's a regulation that was put in place to try to build these grassroots movements uh, to, to enable peace, just to enable communication even. Uh, and that's where we are with the conflict. Uh, we have about 50 years old of unresolved peace talks. Uh, they were unfruitful because mostly lack of political courage uh, in terms mm -hmm. of politicians. Um, and that's why we do what we do. It's uh, one side of it is definitely building a literal grassroots movement that will enable cooperation for a long lasting peace. Uh, this is this is the, the mentality of, this is the motto of Kolev uh, in terms of as, as a social enterprise. When you first decided to do the company, was it always, did you say, okay, Cyprus has some of the best olives in the world. I'm going to go there and start this company. Or was it that, okay, they had the best olives in the world. They also have this issue was right out the gate, the mission to involve both sides of the conflict in the company. Um, or did that come a little bit after? I mean, that's, that's a great question. So I think and the answer to that is that it came kind of gradually, but it was so fast that it, there's there's like a couple of conversations in between to sure. have like an olive oil business in Cyprus. It became to the idea that like, I don't want to have a one-sided business. It, this right. this company has to bring everybody together in Cyprus and around the world. It is about connection, not division. Like I cannot just say like this, these olives are Turkish Cypriot, these olives are Greek Cypriot and like keep them apart. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was never the role view. So that the, from the first moment, we said like, if you're going to do this, we're going to do this island wide. And we have this sort mm -hmm. of opportunity that nobody used before to, to actually have, have that done. Um, so I, we wanted to mean it more than just one part of Cyprus, one part of the world or, or on that sort idea so from the get-go we we knew that this is the this is the road that we want to pursue and this is the road that will take us to to where we want to go how do you do that then right when you first 
say, okay, we're going to do this. Do you go to representatives on both sides? Do you go to community leaders on both sides? How do you even get started? You know, those first conversations of, hey, I want to do this. I want to include both sides. How, how did those conversations go? And were they, you know, harder than expected? Was it easier than expected? Like put us in the room when you had those conversations on, with, with leadership from both sides. I mean, imagine you're, I mean, not a teenager. Okay, I'm, I'm not that young, <laughs> but like, I mean, someone coming from London that like, I was in finance for like 10 years. Like I know the island, okay, like it's, but it is still a conflict zone. Uh, yeah. So coming in there, just having phone calls, like just, I wanted to get to somebody that I could. Um, and I have an extensive family. So I use all the network I had, all, all the family connections I have to, to go to everybody, to go to the both communities, the community leaders and from presidents to community leaders and every everybody I could find. So first, I think the first step for us was to get a single olive across the ceasefire line. Uh, mm. that, was the, that was the first step because it was never been done before. We first got to the organizations that rule the regulation. I use uh, that haven't have not used that part of it, uh, which is the, the Chamber of Commerce here. So we went to Chamber of Commerce's long story short, it took us six to seven months to get the first orders across. Like we we got uh, farmers on both sides. We we said like, this is what we want to do. Um, and they they said, like, I, under I understand. I want to be a part of it. Perfect. Like we got Great. two farmers now, right? Yeah. So, and then we went to the, like the Chamber of Commerce. We got the okays. Six, seven months later, we're, we're at a border. Uh, with like crates of, of olives like trying to cross. And it was always like something goes wrong. Like one of the funniest stories is like we, we got everything right. We think we got everything right. And in practice, you go to a checkpoint and then go like, oh, you need to, you need to go to another checkpoint, which is like, I don't know, in the next town in the capital. Um, and then we drive there. On the through the night, and then when we get to that checkpoint, <laughs> it's like there, there's leaves on this olives, and so you need to clean them up. So right. we we go back and like all the family gets together, and I still remember that day where we literally like took leaves out of olives, which no one ever in the world does because they get clean in the mill. Um, so that was the rocky start from the from the beginning. Like you go to every community leader, you you're calm, you talk about basis of your idea that you don't want to do anything like that will step on any toes. Like we sure. we just made sure that they knew who we are our intentions um and everybody okay because i think we were also locals as well so they knew us uh from from that point but i think the lessons that we can get here we can use and uh, we can export to other places like that's that's not a issue here um it, the issue is like they know have to know your intentions they they need to see the value in what you're doing as a social enterprise in this sort of conflict zone um mm -hmm. and then you get you you win hearts and minds after that yeah, it's a, it's a process, man. You know, it's such a it's such a long, you know, brick by brick, day by day, hour by hour, even, you know, building yeah. something like this up because, you know, any day or any moment in time, it only takes, you know, one person or one day to kind of ruin years of work. You know, if, if something happens or occurs, what are some of, uh, you know, successes are, are a tough term to, to talk about because it, it's hard to define that because it can be defined differently. But I guess, yeah. you know, from years just in business and working with with both sides, you know, having product around the world, uh, really an amazing feat already. What are, I guess, what has some of the success stories been? I guess, what are you most proud of that, that you know, the company has accomplished? Well, I mean, so many, but I, the one thing that like kind of defined us in the past year is we are available. I mean, it's just exciting to say we're available in the Whole Foods nationwide across US uh, beginning May, 2021. Uh, so about six 
months now that we are in every shelf. Like you can, uh, any of the wow. listeners, you can go, you can go all to Whole Foods and you can buy a bottle. Uh, you can and make the like, and our motto is like, you can make the world a better place. You can taste without limits is the tagline <laughs> on the bottle. That is what makes a food like a food entrepreneur's um, heart just like flutter a little bit, a little bit stronger. Yeah. Um, Whole Foods was a serendipitous moment for us. We were gunning for Whole Foods UK, which is about seven stores. At that point, we were strong in the UK. We had uh, we had online sales and we had some sales around the world in 16 countries on an online basis. And we started talking to Austin, which is the the buyer yeah, team, and yeah. yeah, the headquarters, and and they they took it, they took it to heart. Um, they loved the story. It took us a year and a half um, mm. on bits and pieces. Uh, it's not it's not an easy process uh, but i'm so grateful to the whole foods team and our our buyer everybody like we didn't just meet our buyer which usually what happens to brands is like you go to a category buyer and they say yes or no and you get an email um we we they put us in a in a virtual room obviously this is going on in a pandemic sure and we spoke to everybody from head of uh, buying, VP of, of buying as well, of Whole Foods, uh, VP of grocery. And they everybody got to know the, our story. We showed them the buffer zone. We walked them through literally. And they, they loved the idea. Uh, they took us on board. They took a they took a risk. They invested in us. We invested back. Um, it is a is a beautiful partnership now. Um, and without retailers like Whole Foods, without that sort of taking initiative, I, it'll be very hard for any any sort of entrepreneurs. And I, I know you spoke to a couple of them in, in the podcast as well, where they're available in Whole Foods, and yeah. and it makes such a difference uh, for small brands like ours. Um, it just puts us on a different level. So I think yeah. that that success is just took us to another level. And when that something like that happens. Happens. There's so many sort of domino effects that occur, right? Because now you can sort of hire more people, hire more farmers on both sides. Like, I guess, take us through sort of the the org chart, if you will, of the company where you, do you have farmers on, you know, both sides? Do you have employees on? I guess just walk us through kind of like the manufacturing of it all and how it touches, you know, different parts of the islands, different people um, and how it's sort of, you know, bringing everybody together for, for a common you know, mission. I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. So when something like Whole Foods happens to, uh, I think any brand, it's it like stars line. And then mm-hmm. the operations plan that you have, it, it just gets pushed on uh, steroid. Um, then you're just on the go mode to find, find uh, the farmers, find the mill, find the bowling place. So for us, it was no different. From the start of the company, it's uh, run by a Turkish Cypriot and a Greek Cypriot. So I have a, a partner called Alex, which is a university friend of mine that did give you a little con like uh, a context of Cypriot <laughs> uh, conflict that we, we were never be able to meet in Cyprus, but we went to UK for university mm. and that's where we met and like you start a conversation go like, I'm from Cyprus. I was like, I'm from Cyprus. But right. obviously you speak in English and you don't speak Greek and Turkish. I mean, that that becomes, so that was, he was the first person I met and I still say that and <laughs> in the university. Uh, so I came back. So he is the sort of financial officer. Uh, I'm the CEO. I'm the, also the lead sommelier. Uh, I go and visit all the farms. I have a personal relationship with everybody on the on the on the island and the farms. I visually see um, how they tend to olives. I we we have conversations about sort of regenerative uh, uh, agriculture. The point 
of Cyprus, that the main point of Cyprus of sustainable agriculture is water management. So we talk mm. about water management, we talk about pesticides, we talk about like natural pesticides and stuff because we don't allow them to use like chemicals. So there's a transition period of a, of a year or so uh, to convert. Mm. Um, we grow that sort of farming networks in the season. I personally go and lead harvest or harvest myself uh, from mm. each of these 15 farms to have the optimal taste profile. Like I know what they should look like. I know I test all this beforehand. Uh, and then I personally take them to the mill. Um, I'm, I'm literally a truck driver as well. So I'll get them to the mill. I, I, I see the end result and they, they, they get put in a steel storage tanks uh, in nitrogen, which is another thing hmm. that we use for freshness and no, not many other brands use uh, in the world. So we have, we also have a marketing lead now. We have uh, um, in Cyprus, which is a, he's a, she's a Turkish Cypriot. We also have a, a team in, in US that right now, because after Whole Foods, we wanted to really invest in what we're doing. Sure. So we have an amazing marketing agency that we, we work with like on PR. If we talk about another success, then like with New York Times, we'll, we can talk about that later. And we have a policy director who's a United Nations veteran, uh, which lives in Mexico. She's a Cypriot lady that hmm. now lives in northern Mexico. Uh, she is all things United Nations and peace building. So she is in every decision that we make about policy, that we make about like sort of training programs uh, that we that we hold. Um, she's uh, her career took her to Cyprus, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, and then Berlin and than Mexico. So we, this is the this is the structure that we have. We still employ like a whole bunch of people. Employees, uh, the farmers are there. I'm usually the active part in in running the operations. So C- CEO and truck driver. That's a uh, that's a great. You have to be, dude. <laughs> you have to be. That's not joke, anybody. Like and people say, great, like I'm, I'm, yeah, like. I'm uh, I'm not ashamed of that. Like I sometimes I get like hell no, man. Okay, that's a, yeah, that's yeah. A um, honor. That's a badge. Yeah, honor, man. Yeah, no, that's that's epic. Uh, wait, I, I wanted to see if if something like this is even possible. Like you know, you 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 said you kind of talk with everybody, you meet with everybody. Like, is there has there been a moment where you've been able to sit, you know, maybe farmers from both sides down and have a conversation with them all together rather than you individually going to them, you individually going to them. Has there been sort of a conversation together with, with both sides and you and and just, you know, conversations, right? Like trying to, to start a sort of a new chapter of, of the Island and the society. I mean, it's so huge, man, you know? No, no, no. I mean, I I agree. I I agree. And, and I mean, thank you for sort of opening that up. It's a perfect segue. And funny you should mention that because we had plans. We have still have plans to do that. And then something small happened that called COVID-19 and it it completely took everything out. Right. So like there was no physical contact. Cyprus was in a lockdown for for a period because it's the island mentality. So we, we we really took like, there's a couple of uh, cases that happened and it, really went on a lockdown for three, four months. More than that, the, the ceasefire line closed for six months. There were no crossings. Um, it, it was the, the like kind of the old times, right? So we we meant what could happen. Like We, we really felt what the bad times can look like. Uh, there's no interaction. There's no communication. Obviously, everything is virtual, but we couldn't go to the factory. We couldn't go to the our warehouse. Um, so that, that sort of brought us. Right now, the, to come back to your farmer question, yes, there are plans to do this online 
next year mm. through regenerative agriculture. So we have we found trainers that we we absolutely adore. Um, they are experts in olive farming and, and permaculture and the sort of regenerative regenerative uh, agriculture. Uh, we're gonna have videos. Uh, we're gonna have an online education seminar that will bring these guys together um, in, in different languages. We were supposed to have that in a physical setting where yeah. we will go to the farms and, and demo stuff up, but it's not gonna happen. So we, we changed that to virtual now. That, that, that is a plan to bring these guys together on farms. That's great, man. I, I mean, obviously, in-person is, is, is so needed. <laughs> yeah, but obviously, look, it, anything at this point, even if it's virtual, right? I mean, there's, there's a first step to everything. And so yeah. that, that's going to be immensely positive. You mentioned sort of regenerative farming a few times. And, you know, I've talked to some people and, you know, kind of had a, a little bit you know, a knowledge into it just from interviewing people and, and talking to them about their expertise. Talk talk to us about that sort of, not necessarily a new idea, because it's actually just, it's just kind of going back to traditional farming, yeah. right? It's kind of what, what I've been told, right? It's not really exactly. much to it other than going back to sort of the heritage and original way that we made food. It, has that been a difficult transition when, when you talk about you know, like you said, there's a year process to go from, you know, chemical pesticides to natural pesticides. How has that been, you know, when, when you talk to farmers and like, are, are they wanting to do this? They want to go back to this or are they kind of standoffish or, or like, I guess, what are those conversations about around regenerative farming? Because it seems to be really getting some momentum now. It is. I mean, there's no, there's no question about that. I, I, I mean, I hear the podcast. I speak with retailers that they they swear by the sort of regen right now. It's it's like regen act. I think that's the, that's yeah. what it's becoming labeled as. For farmers, it is a tough road. Like the, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. Like not everybody can do that. It requires investment. It requires even to turn a farm to organic, which is much easier than much easier than compared to regen because regen you literally literally go back to roots and try yeah. to create a cycle that yeah. the farm itself can run itself. Uh, so you, you try to minimize all the input that you bring externally. In Cyprus, what very opened the door to regen and sustainable agriculture is always water. We have true climate change. We have uh, longer years of drought. Um, that is even hitting olives now. Uh, olive farming, you, you, olives are, they can stand anything. Olives are known for that. They can live centuries. Mm. Um, there, there, are, there are trees that live more than a millennia. Uh, and that's why it's the, the, it's the peace and wisdom tree um, in ancient, uh, ancient, ancient Greece and other mythologies and other cultures in the world. That's why it's have a, um, a strong place. And olive tree can withstand drought for a couple of years, but we we even seen last year that their their uh, olive trees are drying up. So they this is the first question that we need to address. Uh, and if you have solutions to that, and the region and permaculture does bring some questions, does bring some answers here. We 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 start from that point on. Um, then it becomes a production and it becomes a cost issue. And we try to talk all about that. Obviously for region, you need to you need to really consider the labor cost that goes into it. So right. you need to really pick and choose what, what is going on. The region that we, I think the, the Western world that we talk about now, it is taking a monocrop um, field and like obviously having multi-crop system with yeah. um, li- livestock. That is very labor intensive. That, that exchange is very, very labor intensive. Like uh, if I, I would, I would suggest it, all the listeners to go like the, the little farm, the biggest, the biggest little farm, I think. Um, and they document that 
like that change in in US. Um, so I can I can I can point them at there and like just trying to read all all about it, all the farmers and all the people that are interested because it's not a it's not an easy change. It's, it's a change yeah. I think we should do, but it's not an easy change. I'm wondering if there's. Just again, just from like those I've talked to, uh, talked about a couple of things is is one, you know, the U.S. government policy has always been to subsidize really like unhealthy foods and unhealthy farming. So an easy thing would be to subsidize regenerative farming much healthier or, or you know, incentivize, reward people, subsidize the creation of it's organic farms, regenerative farming. You can slowly you know, maybe it takes 50 years, whatever, but like, you know, you got to start somewhere as a scale that reproduction of the entire food system, but you have to start somewhere and you can't keep funding, you know, the negative, <laughs> the negative, you know, farming, you know, infrastructure and system that, that that's, that's something that can be immediately stopped just by sort of policy. I don't know if the UK is the same way, but that that's sort of one thing that I've come to discover is that there's sort of a, a change there that could be made from a, from a very, very high level. And then the other one would be, you mentioned labor intensive. If there is technology that can sort of help with that, right, can help, you know, scale and distribute the ease of taking that sort of labor intensive away where you can use technology to embed regenerative farming into farms. And maybe that's what subsidizes the technology that enables these farms to become regenerative with sort of less labor, you know, less intense on, on the human side of things. That way, the change can happen much faster. But again, I, I don't know if you've seen anything from that side of the stuff where there's a possibility that we can, you know, go back to, you know, traditional farming, but have technology enable that. So how long do you have? <laughs> as long as you want, man. Right. Um, how long do you have? Like I can I can talk to this for a very long time. But let me let me start from the consumer perspective, which is the key, I think, to solving this with food businesses, right? So there's a big in US and EU. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna forget about UK because I used to live there, but sure, I don't sure, sure, sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take it as a as US and European Union, which are the two biggest yep. economies in the world, right? So the the, the biggest issue with region now is certification. We have largely a good phytosanitary rules within US and EU about normal food products, right? Like we know they're not going to kill us uh, at a certain point. That's the base level, let's say, certification. And then you go organic, where it is delegated to, to countries, whatever, and then they control either the private or public bodies that a field and the fruit, therefore is organic. Um, and then we have the system to do that as well. We can label mm -hmm. that and the customer sees that this is organic, this is not. I have an idea, like uh, obviously we're educating people as as more, like more about organic. Uh, and then they can choose that, which is, I don't know, let's say certain percentage higher price than non-organic, right? This is how it works. Mm -hmm. And then there's an economical incentive for everybody to, to do that to maybe lose some of the, the produce in the long term, gain it back, but have that economical investment running up. Um, and right. there's, there's subsidies in, about that. I think there's sort of transitions in the US, uh, certainly in the EU. In US and EU both, the, this sort of agricultural policy in EU is called common agricultural policy, is the bu biggest budget line of the European Union. Um, I forgot last one, but it's, I think runs in uh, 750 billions or something in euros. Uh, very similar to US, where it's, it heavily subsidizes all kind of all agriculture products. And this was done in a way to, I, I, I'm not sure with intention, it, it obviously led to this sort of industrial agricultural complex that runs on monocrops, right? Like that you have a 
a, a cornfield that you you'll have it as long as you can have that before the land depletes. Uh, this is this is what it is. The biggest problem we have with re- Regen is that we don't have that system in place yet. Like we don't know the people that speak about Regen as well. Like they not everybody has the like the same idea because you say sure. you're going to build a cycle, but you can build a cycle in different ways. Like you can, you have some point, you have to maybe get something externally for places in, in the US and then Cyprus. So we need a perfect sort of, like we need, we need a, a, a complete certification system. We don't have that yet. We try to do that in, in Cyprus. I know it, there's a couple of places in you, even in US, there are a couple of institutes. There's not a single institute that works on this. Um, but I, I know there's works being done because retailers are, are asking for it. Customers are definitely ask, asking mm-hmm. for it. So we need there, there will be a certification process. And then there will be more and more. And the, the, the ecosystem will be built then. Um, and there's more. Come to what I know the labor intensive is that traditionally it's solved by immigration. So the southern U.S. or any, anywhere in the U.S., you have farmers that come from abroad, seasonal workers, same in EU, same in Europe, that they work for the season and they, they kind of leave sure. um, or they, they continue to work for different produce, different seasons, and then they, they enable. The technology so far is on, it's built for monocrops. It's not necessarily built for region. So this is the transition I think we need to have in terms of technology. I think some of the, the work you've been doing in, on impact investing and some of the investors that you, you're having on your, on your podcast, like get to that effect. I think this is the transition that we need to make with technology to, to move from traditional to region. Yeah, no, that's a great point when you said it is is not have the technology work for monocrops, but have the technology that helps you understand what other crops and organisms can pop up in when you take care of your land. From what I understand is that, you know, when you, you sort of farm the correct way, there's sort of natural organisms that happen and there's these other benefits that occur with the soil grows. If you just grow one, one you know, crop, monocropping, it's, it, the land is just going to do that. But if you let it naturally do its thing, it can create these other, you know, organisms. And there's, there could be an economic benefit for that. You know, if you understand what it's growing, the technology says, Hey, if you keep doing this, this will grow this much. There's, there's yield from more crops or organisms than just one. So I think the farmers would love it because it's an economic incentive. And once they're, you know, in for it, then there's the domino effect with supply chains and all this stuff. So I, I think that the economic effect can happen for sure when maybe it's just, you know, there's a case study with land that shows if you do this a certain way, this is the different, you know, crops that will come up over a five to 10 year span or something like that. So I'm optimistic about that because there's an economic incentive for it. And when there's that, there's allocation of capital, there's there's hopefully government subsidies and all this stuff like that. Um, certainly, certainly. I'd like to to end on the final question about the future, my man. And I know it's been a cool, interesting journey for you so far, but when you look sort of, you know, five to 10, 10 years down the line, what does success look like for you? You know, when you, when you sort of take a break and, and have a glass of wine or, or a beer or some tea or, or, or whatever, whatever your fix is, yeah. you know, in, in a decade, what do you want to sit down and have accomplished at that point? Well, that's a good, that's a great question. So 
uh, usually my five, 10 year plan is we do more of the work that we're doing in the short term. I want to, I want to build on Whole Foods. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to build the velocity there and I want to, I want to build on National Channel. Down the road, the 10% fund that we, that we reserve for NGOs and social entrepreneurship, it goes to, to nonprofits that I want to mention here. So one of them Great. is on social entrepreneurship is Cyprus Inom. They build network, uh, they will networks and technology to enable entrepreneurs to become peacemakers. Uh, mm-hmm. This was in our course as well so we really connected with these guys um and they hold trainings uh network networking events um and technology uh, tools to to enable them to to do that they bring people all together uh on the island the second is sort of peace education P- on peace education we work with an amazing world-known uh ngo that is based in cyprus called association of historical dialogue and research uh these guys do amazing projects uh they the core of which is historical facts. They are about truth in a post-truth world. They educate uh, teachers on both sides of the island to break the friend-enemy logic. They uh, build a building. They have a building now in the buffer zone for, for a while now that uh, has a refuge uh, for Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, Armenian Cypriots, a- any kind of ethnicity and religion to come together and build something, build anything. They also bring Great. school kids together to spend a day from ages from primary to high school. Um, they, they bring them together, supervise under these peace educators for them to communicate, to, to get out of stereotypes, to break, the, break the other idea, quote unquote, break the friend enemy logic. So we wanna, we wanna be able to do much more of that in five to 10 years. I think in, in terms of social mission, we already are started to be given as an example on the island. Um, we wanna be a solid example for Cyprus and what an example in, in such that in any conversation, we wanna be like, I, those guys did it. Why can I? Mm. But can't we do it? And there's a big becoming incentive of peace uh, for Cyprus. Um, hopefully, that will lead to a political solution on the island as well. Our aim for five to ten years is do more than olive oil in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we trying to bring. We always have different food products in our mind to to do to it um, and talk about region because it's. The farmers that we want to convert, they they want to do other stuff as well. They want to do other food products. But the second is that we want to expand. There are different, there are other war zones and conflict zones that I think we can we can export the idea of peace, cooperation for long-lasting peace, because we live in a divided world. Um, we don't have an option. Anybody that is listening to the US, they should care because one, it's an amazingly delicious olive oil that they'll get. The second is we live in a divided world. And this is a story about division and connection. Uh, we're trying to connect people in the conflict zones. We're trying to connect those zones and those stuff to, to US. We're trying to bring loved ones in US through good food. Um, so in five to 10 years, we want to be uh, a known brand, but we want to be able to, we want to, we want to see ourselves expanding in a couple of zones that we yep. can, we can sort of connect. I love it, my man. Well, well, thank you so much, Son. This has been a beautiful conversation, man. I'm so excited we, we got to do it and best of luck to you and the team in, in the future. Just <laughs> every day, man, keep, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's phenomenal. It's inspiring. And, and it's just best of luck, man. And tell the team that I'm grateful for all they're doing and, and, and hope we can uh, inspire a few other people with this conversation. So I appreciate your time. Thank you, Grant. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm looking for the next episode as well. <laughs> now, uh, everybody, everybody's saying hi. Like they're very grateful for your work. I uh, just, just keep, just keep at it. Take care. I hope we see you soon. 